We see as John's gospel continues, the signs of Jesus from the early chapters are now leading to conflict. That as people begin to understand who Jesus is, they're, they're objecting. And so we find increasing conflict. We'll, we'll spend a couple of weeks looking at John chapter 9, and so we're just going to look at the beginning, what the, the incident that sort of sparks the conflict question about who Jesus is and why he has come. And so listen as I read the Gospel of John. I'm going to read chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is today, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed And then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for your grace, for your love, for your mercy. We rejoice in seeing the compassion of Jesus combined with his great power. And so, Lord, where our our hearts are resistant to the work of your spirit, to the truth of who Jesus is. Lord, humble us today that we might submit ourselves to the authority of your scriptures, that we might know fully who Jesus is, and we might submit ourselves entirely to him. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Suffering demands explanation. When you see someone suffering, you instinctively try to make sense of it. When you endure painful situations, you try to understand what is going on. You might shout at God, scream at the universe, or silently give up any hope of understanding. But suffering demands explanation. As you wait for the doctor's results, You stew in the big questions of life. As you proceed through a pandemic, you think, what is God doing? As you doom scroll your way through the headlines, you wonder, does God even care? Because suffering demands an explanation. When the disciples of Jesus see a man blind from birth, they ask their question of Jesus. 
They demand an explanation for the suffering that's right in front of them. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? The disciples make a connection between sin and suffering. Between doing your own thing, going your own way, rebelling against God, and suffering. They have an explanation for suffering. It's sin. They just need a little bit of help narrowing it down. He was born blind, which means his suffering started from before he was born. So whose fault is it? His fault or his parents' fault? Because sin is the explanation for suffering, they, they understand. And so tell us, who is it who sinned? Now, admittedly, sometimes the connection between our suffering and our sin is really obvious. We rebel against God, and then we suffer the immediate consequences. A hangover after a night of drinking. A DUI. A deadly crash. See, sometimes we can pretty easily trace the line from personal sin to tragic suffering. But sometimes the connections between sin and suffering, it's a little bit harder to get directly to the culprit. Maybe because he's fled the scene, but maybe because it's a bigger problem. The disciples think they, that, it, that, it, that it's pretty obvious here. There are really only two options. The man, this man is obviously suffering. He is known as someone who has been blind since birth. So he's well enough known in the community that, that even in their passing through or having been now to Jerusalem multiple times, they recognize this man. They know enough of his story to say, well, it's, it's pretty simple. It's either this man, it's his sin, or it was the sin of his parents. Now, in some sense, this is partly true. Suffering is traceable back to sin. But if we need an individual to blame, it's, it's wrong to, to immediately jump to the conclusion that the person in front of you who is suffering is the one responsible for that suffering. If you need someone to blame, I can give you names. Adam and Eve. Because, yes, sin is always responsible for suffering, but not always the sin of the person who's suffering in front of you. Yes, the world is broken by the rebellion of humanity, by Adam and Eve's original sin in turning their back on God and deciding they could be kings of the universe. They could rule without him in their lives. And so all that has gone wrong, the, the curse that they brought about, is the result of sin. And so it's partly true what the disciples understand, that suffering is explainable by sin. And their instincts are, are, are partly true here as well. Who is the one person in this equation that's not blamed? God. I mean, they, they want to protect God's reputation, and so they say, well, it must be, if, it, if it's not God's fault, that suffering exists, well, then it must be one of the people right here. And that's actually a helpful instinct that, to understand that because God is good, because God is powerful, suffering is not his fault. 
Now, actually, those responses of the disciples, the assumptions that they have as first century men who grew up going to synagogue, who, who ask a question of their rabbi, their instincts are much different than the instincts you and I have when we face questions of suffering. I mean, we, we don't necessarily jump to the conclusion that, that sin is involved in any way when there's suffering. Partly because, well, we don't like the word sin. We don't like the concept of sin. We don't like to, to take blame for anything. And so, well, it, it must just be the way things are. Or if we're willing to place blame, we want to do it, we want to do it only at the, at the big categorical level and not at an individual level. And we certainly don't, don't share the, the disciples' concern for protecting God's reputation. No, our instincts are, well, if someone's suffering and God is good and powerful, then this must be his fault. And so Jesus responds to the questions, to the assumptions of his disciples. But he also then meets the needs of the man right in front of him. Look at Jesus' response. They ask in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus gives them a direct answer. He doesn't, at, at, at times in the Gospels, he'll throw questions back at the questioner. At times, he'll, he'll challenge their assumptions. But here, he's generous enough to give them a direct answer. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus answers in verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. See, this is an important lesson for us. Suffering is not always traceable back to our individual sins. Now, I think, I think rightly at times as Christians, as followers of Christ, we should stop and say, is the suffering in my life a result of my own failures? Did I bring this about? Am I guilty? Am I culpable before God? But we can't jump to the conclusion that, that we just, like, we need to keep searching until we find our failures in this moment. Because sometimes Jesus says, no, suffering has bigger purposes, bigger explanations. It's not the sin of this man, nor the sin of his parents that brought about his blindness. I mean, the disciples, they make the same assumption that Job's friends made in the Old Testament. Job, who, who has everything that life could have to offer, and then Satan comes to take it all away. And Job's friends show up to bring him comfort, and they just say, hey, Job, you messed up. We just have to figure out where you messed up, and we can fix this. They're, they're living as if, as if the universe is, is a vending machine. You put the sin in, and then you're going to get the consequences. They're, they're missing the fact that we live in a, in a world broken by sin. The friends of Job give only partial answers. The disciples of Jesus have only a partial explanation. But Jesus says, no, this happened not because of this man's sin or the sin of his parents. This happened so that you can see God at work right here in this moment. So that the work of God will be displayed. That the ministry of Jesus will be displayed. The, the response of faith from the man will be put on center stage. See, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the power of God. The redemption, the restoration for which we all long. When we see suffering, we instinctively want to do something to fix it. And yet so many times we're powerless to do anything. And yet here stands Jesus, the Savior, the Rescuer, the Healer, and he will respond. So he says in verse 4, As long as, as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. 
sort of an enigmatic phrase, but, but Jesus is essentially saying, the light of the world is right here in your midst. And while this light shines, you're going to see the glory of God. You're going to get a glimpse of what God is doing. We're going to see something of Jesus' ministry and purpose. He is the very one sent by God for this reason, to bring hope and healing here on earth. And so in verse 5, he repeats what we already know as readers of the Gospel of John, this phrase that he is the light of the world. He says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, it's been months since we read the beginning of John chapter 8. But there, when Jesus first went into the, the city, we, we, we see Jesus stand and speak to the people back in, in John 8, verse 12, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And now we're getting to see what that looks like. What does the claim that Jesus is the light of the world really mean? Now remember, in John's gospel, the miracles aren't, aren't merely meant to, to show us something in that moment. They're, they're signs. They're, they're like traffic signs directing you a, a different way. You're, you're not supposed to, you know, when you're, when you're driving someplace, you don't drive to the sign. I mean, like the exit sign is pointing you off. If you drive straight into the sign, you've caused an accident. No, the sign points you somewhere different. The miracles in John's gospel are meant to point us not to that moment, but to the Savior, Rescuer, who stands there in that moment. And, and to make sure that we, we don't miss it, John is really helpful. Jesus is really helpful in explaining what's happening here. He says, okay, here's the sign. I'm going to heal this man. But let me explain what the sign is pointing you to. The light of the world. The man who is trapped in darkness will have his eyes opened. The world which is trapped in darkness will be given the, the light of life, that whoever believes in Jesus and follows him will have eternal life. Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world. He brings the light of sight to this man who has been born blind. And so in verse 6, we see the miracle take place. Having said this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Okay, now, Commentators throughout the centuries have tried to explain this. I mean, John is nice enough to explain everything else that's happening in this passage. What, what, does the, what is the symbolism, the sign of a man who was in darkness receiving light? Oh, it's because Jesus is the light of the world who gives you the hope of eternal life. Okay, I understand. Even the fact that the man is told to go wash in the pool of Siloam, you and I are told in verse 7, Oh, Siloam, that's from the Hebrew word for sent. And who is the one who was sent? Oh, well, in case you forgot, Jesus just said it back in verse 4. I am the one who was sent. So all of the other, all of the other symbols in this passage are clearly explained to us to point us to Jesus, the light of the world, the one sent by God. And yet, what's he doing here? I mean, he has the power to raise the dead with his voice. He has the power to heal the, the sick to, to heal the blind only with a word. And so, so why make a mess and put mud on the man's eyes? Well, there are lots of creative explanations given by commentators, but the one that's most consistently been given from the earliest centuries of the church is the fact that, that Jesus is the creator standing in front of us. Just as God used the, the dust of the earth 
to form humanity in the perfection of creation. So here, Jesus, the rescuer, the savior, bends down and, and mixes his life with the, the dust and spreads it on the man's eyes and sends him to the pool of Siloam. And so it's a picture for us of the power of Jesus, but it's also a picture for us of, of what it is to respond by faith. The man is sent, and he goes. He goes and washes in the pool, and he comes home seeing. Now, Jesus did not simply answer the disciples' questions about suffering generally. He didn't sort of pull them aside and let's sit down on this hillside and let's talk philosophically about the problem of evil and what's gone wrong in the world. No, he deals with the problem of suffering specifically. The disciples walk past this man, a man whom they've probably seen before because they know enough about him to know he's been blind his whole life. And what do they do? They use him as an illustration. Look at that man. That makes me think of a really hard theological problem. So let's talk about this really hard theological problem. Now, tragically, I think that's the way that I would likely have responded, because I like those big questions. I mean, it's much easier to read about this kind of problem, to philosophize about it, to sit over a cup of coffee and have a conversation, than actually get involved in the struggle of people's lives, to care for those that are hurting, and to do it personally. See, disciples saw an object lesson, a curiosity for their theological speculation. And yet Jesus sees a man who is suffering. The miracle is so unexpected in this passage that the neighbors are trying to figure out, wait, isn't that the guy who, like, earlier today was sitting here begging? Some of them are pretty convinced. I've seen him every day. It's surely the same guy. Others, they're, they're so confused about the possibility of a miracle that they say, no, it's somebody else who looks like him. It's just a, a new beggar who's come in uh, maybe for the, for the feasts. He's here to, 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 to maybe, it, it just looks like him. See, we sometimes assume that ancient people were so gullible they would believe every miracle that, that came along. No, they, they can't even comprehend that a miracle could take place, so they come up with the explanation, like, no, it's just a lookalike. Yeah, I mean, don't, I mean, all beggars kind of look the same, right? I mean, we never, you never really stop and look at them. You just kind of rush past them. I, I, I think it's a different guy. See, they demand an explanation from the man, and, and, and he knows so little about what's happened that all he can do is give them the basic facts. In verse 10, they ask, how then were your eyes opened, they demanded. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Now, there's, there's no new information given to us as the readers in that statement. Like that, that if a screenwriter were, were here working on this, he'd cut all of that out because there's no new exposition that's been given. We just saw all of that take place. And yet, John repeats it for us because we're, we're left with the simple faith of this man. Jesus told him something, and he obeyed. He responded. Jesus promised something, and then it happened. 
See, he doesn't know anything more about Jesus that, that even when they ask the question, where is this man? Where is this one whom they call Jesus? They ask him in verse 12, and he just says, I don't know. I don't know anything more. But we do. We know that he's the light of the world. We know that he's the one sent by God himself. We know that he has the power to heal. We know that he has the answer to suffering. Because Jesus not only explains the theological basis for suffering, he shows compassion to those who suffer. He offers the hope of the removal of suffering. Because suffering demands explanation. But, but let me ask, does your view of the world offer any explanation? And I don't mean merely for the end of suffering, but, but to even give us an explanation for the existence of suffering. Historically, this problem has philosophically been called the problem of evil. And it's a genuine problem. It's probably the human problem. It's the biggest question that, that, that can be asked that's been asked since the time of Job and likely before, asked by peoples in all parts of the world, what has gone wrong with the world? It's a problem that demands an explanation from every person. Maybe not so much a, theolo a theological or philosophical explanation as a practical explanation. But without a belief in God and understanding that God is the creator, that sin entered the world through humanity, through Adam and Eve's rebellion, then we actually have to take the problem of evil and go backwards a step to a prior problem, which some theologians would call the problem of good. All right, you see, the problem of evil, the problem of good. It's, I mean, philosophers are pretty witty. Because if there is not a personal God who made the universe, how do you explain the existence of evil? I mean, we instinctively know when we see suffering that that's wrong. I need to do something about this. This isn't the way it should be, but, but why? Does your view of the world make any sense of the problem, not just of evil, but the problem of good? If things are just the way that they are, if this is just the universe that exists, if you're just in one universe, in a multiverse, and, and you can't understand what's happening, then, then why do you even call evil evil? Why do you think suffering is wrong? Yes, Christians must answer the problem of evil. All of us must try to find an answer. The disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? But if you're a Christian, then you must also provide, if you're not a Christian, you must also provide an explanation for the idea of good and evil itself. See, suffering demands an explanation. But Jesus gives us much more than an explanation. He gives us hope. Not just an understanding of, oh, wait, that's it? Like, we're just stuck here? This is all that there is? There's, there's nothing good that could possibly take place? Jesus actually gives us hope because he offers us himself. Hope because he has power over suffering to make a man who has been blind his entire life able to see. Hope because he will undo all suffering when the world is restored. This miracle is but a sign of his great power, of what he will do to every case of suffering. 
There is hope for us that one day, that the new day will dawn after the darkness of our sins. The disciples wonder who is guilty for sin, the man or his parents. Jesus does not leave us wondering about the guilt of sin. We are all guilty, each one of us. And yet Jesus takes our guilt upon himself. He is the one sent by God to deal with our sin. One commentator calls this passage a a case study of genuine faith. We've seen Jesus make gigantic claims through the gospel, and now we have the opportunity to see, will this man respond? Will he go? Will he wash? Will he be healed? And so the man responds to the command of Jesus. But it wasn't the mud that healed him. It wasn't the water of Siloam that healed him. Jesus healed this man. The man was called to respond by faith, to trust what Jesus said, to believe the promises of God, to obey what Jesus had told him. And you today are called to respond by faith. When we read the scriptures, when we read the gospels, it is a test of our own faith. Do I really believe this? Do I believe that Jesus is the one sent by God, the true light of the world? Will I trust in him? Will I acknowledge his goodness and compassion and mercy? Will I have confidence in his power? See, our suffering finds its explanation in this son who is willing to suffer. The disciples want to know, is it the parents or the son who's guilty? And Jesus steps in and says, it's me, the son. I will take your guilt upon myself. Jesus, the Savior, who comes as the righteous, holy one, the innocent one, the only one who doesn't deserve any of the suffering that comes his way, the only one to whom, if Jesus suffers, we would absolutely, without a doubt, say it's not his fault. And yet he is the one willing to go to the cross for us. His suffering shows us the depths of God's love. Jesus is the son who takes our guilt. Adam Dooley describes the horror of his three-year-old son's cancer diagnosis. They've just arrived from their local hospital to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Adam, dad, is still in the hallway signing waivers just outside his son's room when he hears screaming. He enters the room to find four nurses nearly prostrate, each one holding down one of his son's limbs so that they can do the necessary work for little Carson to put the IV needle into his arm. Carson, this three-year-old, screams for his father. He gasps for breath. Make them stop, Daddy. Take me home. Don't do this to me. Adam says, everything inside me wanted to pick him up in my arms and end this unwanted interruption in our lives. Dad tries to explain the pain is temporary. If you hold still, the pain will be less. But his son cannot understand the trauma is just too big. Adam continues, to help hold him still, I stretched my body over his grabbing both his little wrists and holding him in place 
for the nurses. In this position, they're face to face. And so dad presses his forehead against his little son and says to him, this will only take a moment. But his words don't help. No, daddy. Don't do this. Get away from me. He will understand one day, dad thinks, that I'm doing this because I love him. And Adam explains there in that moment, he understands this is exactly what God does for me. Adam understands it's as if God is speaking to him, I love you more than you could ever love little Carson. Will you trust me to give you what you need in this time of trial? Because God meets us in our time of need. He is the loving Father who sent his Son. The Father who goes face to face with the horror of your sin when his Son hangs on the cross. But not as an innocent victim, as a willing sufferer. As the Savior who chooses to go to that cross for you. The Savior who took our sin upon himself, our rescuer who was raised from the dead, he has conquered suffering and death. And so Jesus offers us comfort in the midst of our pain. He offers us hope that all, one day all will be made right. The morning light is coming because Jesus is the light of the world. Let's bow in prayer. Father, our hearts are heavy as we confront suffering in our world. As we consider the the pain of friends and neighbors, the sorrow and sadness that that we walk through every day. Lord, I pray that as we have seen the compassion and love of Jesus... In Jerusalem, healing a man in such desperate need that we would understand the love of Jesus for ourselves. We would not confront these questions merely as philosophical or abstract theological problems, but that we would understand that you are the God who loves us, that you sent Jesus to save us from our sins. So, Lord, give us hope and comfort even now as we come to the table, which points us to the death of Christ, which reminds us of his return Lord, we come because Jesus is the light of the world. Amen.